What makes you anxious? What makes you anxious? <laughs> public speaking, yeah. <laughs> has has your mind been changed now that you've taken the class? Yeah, it was like the most fun class I've ever taken. Really? Yes, I highly recommend it to you. Nice, that's awesome. Only with Donald though. Anyone else? Yeah. There's some tutors in the house for public speaking too, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey. In case you need any help to become less anxious. Yeah, I mean, it is one of the top fears. Yeah. What else? What else are you anxious about? One more brave soul's answer. Anybody? You're not anxious about anything. You've, you've heeded the commands of Christ. <laughs> you are perfect. <laughs> Ah, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. (laughs) I'm anxious about, uh, yes, exposing my anxieties uh, to other people. (laughs) Nice, I like it. It's a great non-answer answer. There is an answer, I mean, you know, it's legitimate. Being, I mean, being honest in front of other people, you know, that's that's a form of public speaking in front of somebody else. I mean, being real, open, authentic, like, hey, this is what I struggle with. And I don't want to tell you because I don't know what you're going to do with that information. It makes me anxious to know that you have that control over me now with that information. Right? I mean, that's, that's true. It's legitimate. Well, some people are anxious about the future. And that is a bit of what we're going to talk about from Daniel's perspective and even still from our perspective in Daniel chapter 7. Are you anxious about the future? Anxious about what's going to happen with... Roe v. Wade. Are you anxious about what's going to happen with the next election that happens in our country at the end of the year with midterms? Are you anxious about the next president? Are you anxious about the current president? Are you anxious about the past president? There are many things that we have to be anxious for. And the future is definitely one of those for many people. But for us, I pray that as we look at Daniel chapter 7 today together, that we can learn that There is no need to remain anxious. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter to give us a good idea of what's happening here. And then we're going to come back and go through a bunch of points. So Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, 
but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom." Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What makes you anxious? Think about all the things that Daniel's been through. Now this, what Daniel records in his vision, was before the lion's den. This was the first year of Belshazzar, so we're actually kind of going back chronologically in the life of Daniel from where he was in chapter 6 and even from chapter 5. Remember chapter 5, it talked about Belshazzar and the fact that that very night the kingdom was taken from him. But this is the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we've gone backwards a little bit, but you think still this is about 553 BC, most scholars would say. And so this is 50 plus years probably 55 years, Daniel has lived in Babylon. So he is probably 65, 70 years old. He has seen a lot in his time. But never before in this book that we have of Daniel has he responded in this way. He's anxious. He's greatly troubled. His color changed. What makes you anxious? What makes me anxious is having to preach on prophecy. (laughs) (laughs) there i've said it what makes me anxious is having to go through all the other chapters in daniel but we'll take them one week at a time daniel chapter 7 i want us to see a few things generally first about prophecy and about apocalyptic prophecy and then some particular things that we can take away from what we have seen here that daniel gives us in his dream and the interpretation that he has been given and that he then gives to us in his dream. So first, a couple things just generally about this type of literature. As we read this, you'll notice that a lot of these things are not similar to what we would typically encounter. These are fanciful descriptions. I was reading one commentary, and the commentator likened apocalyptic scripture and prophetic literature to um, saying how the sun went dark and the moon turned to blood and then it's going to be 
sunny for the rest of the day, you know, and, and it's going to rain tomorrow. Like it's a forecast of all of this imagery that doesn't typically happen where the, the moon is turning to blood, the sun is going dark, the, the stars are falling from heaven. And then all of a sudden you go into a regular weather forecast and it's like it's going to rain and 30, 30% chance of rain tomorrow and windy, you know, 10 to 20 mile an hour winds. There, there's a difference between a weather forecast and a forecast of things that are to come and a generalization and a hyping up of these events that are taking place. So whenever we encounter apocalyptic literature, you must realize that a lot of this is symbolism. It's not just symbolism, so don't fall prey to going down that road of saying none of this is real, but also don't go down the road of saying all of this is explicitly real and it's going to happen explicitly this way. So we're sort of on the crest of a hill, as it were, and you can fall off on either side. And from my vantage point, it's best to stay on top of that hill and stay in the middle of those two things. Realize that there's symbolism, but then realize that there is reality being spoken of here. Let the imagery speak to the reality for which it exists. Another thing to think about is in prophetic literature is that oftentimes what is being relayed is not just a one-time event that's going to happen in the future. There is oftentimes a layered approach to what is being seen. So what Daniel is seeing is not just one thing that's going to happen in the future. This is sometimes a progression of things, which we can clearly see from there's a beast and then a second beast and then a third beast, and then another after that comes a fourth beast. So there's a progression. But then also, sometimes some of these things are seen, and if you know, you kind of do that picture of a couple mountains in the distance where like I'm holding up both my hands, but you can kind of only see one of them but there's something behind it that you can't really tell because it's very similar or it's going to happen at a later time. And so it may be further apart, but it looks the same whenever you're looking at it from the vantage point of the back. And so realize that not all of this is going to happen at once. Sometimes some of these things take time to come about whenever you're reading these prophetic words. So for Daniel, there was an immediate, hey, like you're living in the realm of this first beast. But then there's also the next 500 years, which are represented by the next couple beasts. And then there's also still even in our own future, 2,500 years later, there is still some of this that is going to be fulfilled and has not yet been fulfilled. So think about that when you think of and when you're reading apocalyptic and prophetic literature. A second thing is this chapter is written in Aramaic. Now, your Bible is probably English, hopefully so, since we're in America and we use English things, right? But this is written in Aramaic. Now, this is the last chapter in Daniel that's written in Aramaic. It started in chapter 2, verse 4, and has gone all the way up to this point, and chapter 7 is still in Aramaic, but chapter 8 goes back to Hebrew. And so realize that this is written in Aramaic. This is the first of four visions that Daniel has, and it's the only one that's written in Aramaic. And so this acts, chapter 7, as a hinge between the first half of the book and the second half. It begins his prophetic visions, but then it also ends sort of these concentric circles that we've had in chapters 2 through 7 in these Aramaic chapters. So chapter 7, you'll notice when you go back and read chapter 2, is very similar, this image, these prophecies, these visions that have been given. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2 of the, the great image is very similar to the beasts that we have encountered here in chapter 7. Then chapter 3, where we had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace was very similar, and a lot of details were similar to Daniel and the lion's den in chapter 6. And then chapters 4 and 5 were very similar. So realize that when you're reading specifically this chapter of prophetic literature, these details. 
As I said before, this happens before the events of chapter 5, and this should make you pause and consider why. Why does Daniel not just chronologically go through the events of his life whenever he's detailing these things in this book? He has put them in such a way, ordered them so that they tell a particular story for his audience. Another thing to realize, especially in comparison to chapter 2, is this is not just from Daniel's perspective. This is from God's perspective. Chapter 2 was much from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, from man's perspective. A lot of what we see is this great and wonderful, awesome image. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. Things that we would think of and say, wow, this is great and wonderful and awe-inspiring and huge. For someone like Nebuchadnezzar, that would be the case. For a human, that would be the case. But what we have here in chapter 7 is a lot more from Daniel's perspective and God's perspective. Notice that the nations are represented not as a head of gold, but as beasts, as monsters, always craving power, animal-like in their dealings, in their actions. The other thing, the last thing to note here about it being written in Aramaic, as I've mentioned before when we did chapter 2, is that this is meant not just for the people of Israel. This is meant for the Gentiles also. This is meant for Jews and Gentiles. This is meant for Israel and Babylon. This is meant for the church and for the world. Especially this vision in chapter 7. Now, all of it really is, we would argue, but especially so during Daniel's time. This was not just for him. This was not for just his Jewish friends. This was not just for the people of God. This was for all to read, to see, to hear, to understand. And it still is for us. The truths that are contained, the visions, this vision that is contained here in chapter 7. So, apocalyptic literature Aramaic literature, as it were. The third point that we'll have of our nine, I think, that we're going to have today, is the kingdoms of this world have their time and place. The kingdoms of this world have their time and place, but their power won't last forever. Look back at verses 11 and 12 and notice this. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The kingdoms of this world have their time and place, but their power won't last forever. One of the things that as we read through it, you may have noticed, you may not have, but something I want to make sure and point out is that when he's talking about the beasts, especially in verses 1 through 12, so much of the language is not what the beasts are doing, but what they're being allowed to do and what's being done to them. So if you look, for example, at verse 4, it says the first, speaking of the first beast, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. Well, do you think it plucked its own wings off? Probably not. Well, who did that? Well, it doesn't tell us. But it tells us that there's something greater happening. There's some other power over this that is doing the work to these beasts, that is allowing these beasts to have the power, the dominion that they do have. When I read verses 11 and 12 again just a minute ago, you notice that their dominion was taken away. Well, who took away that dominion? Who threw the beast into the fire, that fourth beast? Something else is at work in all of this, and so don't miss the fact that, yes, these kingdoms have their place and time, but there is something greater, there's something overarching that is beyond these beasts, that is over these beasts. Look at the bear, for example. In verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. 
Well, why was it raised up on one side? It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. It's being explicitly told what to do. One of the things that we must realize is if these kingdoms have their place and their time, it's also true that we are put under their authority to some extent. And with that being put under their authority to some extent, as Daniel was himself, under the authority of Babylon, having been exiled from his own country, that God's people will suffer. God's people will suffer, but their suffering isn't going to last forever. Nations rise and fall, and we are to treat them with appropriate fear or respect or submission. Whatever, whatever proper word you want to insert there, we need to treat the nations with the respect that is due them and with the, the awful fear that is due to them because of the power that they have been granted. It doesn't mean we have to cower in fear doesn't mean we have to submit and do the things that are ungodly. It just means that recognize that God is in control and that these nations exist for a reason, for a purpose. And so to fight against that is in some capacity, we have to recognize in some capacity it is to fight against the authority that God has given to it. Sometimes it's rightful for us to do that. But at other times, we must be prudent and careful as to how we do that. The kingdoms of this world have their time and place, but their power is not going to last forever. A fourth thing to think about in these prophecies, in this vision, the kingdoms mentioned here in Daniel 7 are both literal and representative These do stand, these beasts do stand for literal kingdoms, as I understand it, at least. So these four kingdoms are represented much how we would have taken the four different parts of the image in chapter 2. The first beast stands for Babylon. And you would recognize a little bit of this, you would think of this a little bit from chapter 4 and how Nebuchadnezzar was made into like a beast, and then he was put back onto his feet, made back like a man after he was himself literally turned into a beast for a period of time. And so you would recall that, having read through Daniel to this point, and I don't think that that's just a coincidence, I think that's a little bit uh, intentional, where this lion with wings like an eagle, its wings are plucked off, right? It's some of the The power was stripped away like it was for Nebuchadnezzar. And then instead of remaining a beast, it was set up on two feet like a man, like Nebuchadnezzar was at the end of his seven-year exile to beasthood, as it were. So the first beast we would recognize as Babylon. So Daniel was living in that period, in that time. He had seen what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in the vision of chapter 2. That Nebuchadnezzar had. It was told specifically to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And so we would recognize the first beast as Babylon. The second kingdom, the second beast would have been the Medes and Persians, the ones that take over in Daniel chapter 5 at the end. The one, the time when last week we talked about in Daniel chapter 6, where Daniel was thrown in the lion's den under the authority of Darius the Mede. So even Daniel himself encountered the second beast, the second kingdom, as it were, of the Medes and Persians. Lasted for a couple hundred years. And then we have the third beast, which is represented by a leopard. Where was it? In verse 6. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This is most likely representative of Greece, Alexander the Great. If you are a history buff, maybe you know the swift conquest that Alexander had. He died at a very young age, but at that point, even just as a young 30-something 
man, he had conquered basically most of the known world from Asia through Europe and northern Africa. He had conquered basically all that there was to conquer in just a span of basically a decade. And so that is why it would seemingly be quite prudent to see him as the leopard, who is a very swift and quick animal, who also has wings, which means it's also very fast. And then, of course, his kingdom was split into four different kingdoms, as it were, four different territories after he died. So perhaps that's why it says, and the beast had four heads and dominion was given over it. So that's how I would understand the third beast as being Greece. And the fourth, iron is often a symbol for the empire of Rome. And so we would see Rome as being the fourth beast. There's a lot more to say about the fourth, which is why almost all of the interpretation that Daniel asks for from the angel is, well, what about this fourth beast? And there's more to this fourth beast than just it being ancient Rome. As we read in chapters 11, or in verses 11 and 12, it said that as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Really, all of these All of these kingdoms are still represented, not just in history past, but they're still still present in some capacity today. The similarities still exist. The kingdoms that have come since share these similarities. You think of kingdoms that are today, nations today, like North Korea. You think of communist Russia in the last century. You think of Nazi Germany. You think of African warlords. You think of the Spanish settlers of centuries past. All of these countries, these kingdoms that have sought to expand their kingdoms at rates in which some of these did, usually much slower, not with as much success, but you see what World War II was like for Europe and what it could have been had it not been for the things that took place and for atomic bombs and such. But so many of these rulers all over Asia, Africa, Europe, America, so many of these kingdoms, these nations, have a lot of similarities to these ancient kingdoms. And the severity of these first three kingdoms, it's almost as if the first three are given to prove that the extremity of the fourth is no exaggeration. This fourth kingdom that really, for the most part, is still to come. I mean, you saw how much, most of us are pretty aware, I think, of the extent of ancient Rome. But then we also see that this kingdom is going to be headed up by this king who conquers other kings that are currently there, and then he suppresses and makes the saints suffer. He's given authority and dominion. He shall think to change the times and the law, it says, to wear out the saints of the Most High. I think this is more than just the persecution of the early church. And so when you look at the the kingdoms of the first three, you think, wow, those were people who had authority over Israel, much of them, who did a work to suppress the work of God as much as they could. And this fourth beast, which was terrifying, which Daniel was so anxious, he had to go ask. Now, I get these first three, but those aren't what terrify me. What really terrifies me is this fourth one. And I think some of these, these first three are given to Daniel to show that what has happened, what is happening, what's soon to happen around your own time is to give us proof, to give you proof, Daniel, to give proof to the people you're writing this to, to us still a couple millennia later, that what was going to happen in the near future was just a proof that what is still to come even in our own future 
is true, is real. Like here are some particular ways in which to see that this prophecy has been fulfilled, this vision has come true. Now all of it's going to come true. There's every reason for us to believe that if all these things were true in the past, why would they not still be true in the future? And why should we not believe of what is to come still? So, some of what I want to think about for a minute is maybe why, more than just the fear of the fourth beast, but why was Daniel troubled? Why was he anxious? And I think one of that is sort of fifth point, is let us consider those who have endured, are enduring, and will endure the trials and suffering of all of these kingdoms. I think some of what troubled Daniel, in my opinion, was him seeing the suffering that was going to happen of the people of God under the rule of these kingdoms. Now, he himself suffered in some capacity in his own life. He went through trials in his own life. But what he is seeing is way beyond the scope of what he himself had to endure. And so we see a glimpse of his compassion toward those who are suffering and dying under the dominion of these four kingdoms, and especially of the fourth kingdom. Now that's verse 23. I'll read again. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. We read before we did our corporate prayer, Revelation 13. And we saw in Revelation 13 a very similar image of what we have here in Daniel chapter 7. And it says explicitly in Revelation 13 of this beast, the beast was given a mouth in verse 5 of Revelation 13, a given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This fourth beast, this little horn that rises up to be the king of this fourth kingdom, is going to kill many of God's people. And I think Daniel has some compassion. He says, like, I've, I've rose to prominence in my time under one of these kings, under one of these kingdoms. But people aren't going to have it as good as I've had it. People are going to suffer. To think only of ourselves or seek our own prosperity is to blind and isolate ourselves. And I don't think that was Daniel's nature. God has given us this knowledge so that we would have warning and also have hope. So often in America, we thank God that we are not persecuted like people in China, like people in Christians in North Korea, Christians in Djibouti, Christians all over the world. These nations that we pray for, these people groups that we pray for every week. We thank God, thank you that I don't have to suffer and that I don't have to be quiet, that I don't have to meet secretly in house churches that the government doesn't know about. We thank God that we're not in these positions, but the reality is those who are persecuted are blessed. And our love of peace and freedom can keep us from recognizing the honor it is to suffer for the faith and persevere. 
Now, this doesn't mean we ought to go looking for a battle. This doesn't mean we ought to go looking for persecution. But we ought to be real about just how blessed how blessed it was for the, the apostles in the book of Acts to be counted worthy to suffer for the name, as it were, when they were beaten by the Jewish leaders, when they were thrown in prison and God miraculously helped them to escape with the help of angels. They praised God and said, I'm so glad we're singing psalms and hymns in the prison, Paul was. Peter was. But one good thing, one area of hope is that there is an end to suffering. There is an end to this battle. God's kingdom will prevail. And that's our sixth point. God's kingdom will last forever. Psalm chapter 2 is a good example of how this had been known and should still be known. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The nations do rage. They, the, the kings and their kingdoms, they plot, but it's in vain because God's kingdom is the only one that will last forever. And he sits on his throne. It's given us in verses 9 through 12, this picture of the ancient of days. He's going to sit on his throne, not just as a ruler, but as a judge. And as a judge, he is going to have wisdom there in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. It's a sign of purity. Hair, the hair of his head like pure wool. I mean, that's wisdom, right? With with gray hair comes, hopefully, certainly wisdom. That's the idea there. Hair like pure wool, there's wisdom. Not only does he have wisdom, but he has the purity to make the right choices. He knows how to discern between right and wrong, but he is always going to choose what's right, what is good. And he has the power to enforce those judgments of what is right and what is wrong and to choose the right. He has the power. And that's what it is at the end of verse 9. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. He has the power. He has the wisdom. He has the purity. And he has the power as judge to enforce his judgments, to rule over this kingdom. His kingdom has begun, but it has not yet been fully established. This is one of the things that when you look back at chapter 2 and the image, and the image is destroyed because of the, of the stone that was not cut out by any human hands, but then it broke the image into pieces and it grew like a mountain on the earth and its kingdom endured forever and ever. And I think, rightfully so, we see that stone that's cut out, not with human hands, as I mentioned when we looked at chapter 2, as Jesus is that stone. He is, as we'll see in our next point, he is the Son of Man, as it is given to us in verses 13 and 14. But his kingdom has not been fully established yet. His kingdom has come, but not completely yet. And so this is why I've made the point before, I've said it a couple of times already, why all of these events have not yet taken place. There's still some of this to come. His kingdom, God's kingdom, has begun, but it has yet to be fully, completely established. 
The other thing we see is that God's people will reign with him. God's people will reign with him. Resurrection, and that's one thing that's interesting about when you really think of, look at these verses and this chapter as a whole. It speaks of resurrection. It speaks of eternal life. These saints are going to reign with God and with the Son of Man. Their underlying truths. Our seventh point, because we need to keep going, is Jesus is the Son of Man. Verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We read Revelation 13. You can also read Revelation chapter 14, where this is alluded to in verse 14 of Revelation 14. Then I looked, and behold, John says, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. It's interesting how... Chapters 13 and 14 in Revelation correspond so heavily to this vision of Daniel in chapter 7. Jesus himself identified as the Son of Man. It was one of his most commonly used titles for himself during his ministry, and especially it is the particular thing that we're given at the end of the Gospels when he calls himself When he says, yes, and you'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He says that about himself, and that is what really throws the Jewish leaders into the rage where they finally say, that's enough. We've heard it from his own lips. We are going to send him over to Pilate. We're going to beat him first. We're going to slap him. We're going to mock him. We're going to spit on him. But that's the final straw. That's the blasphemous account that they have to hang their hat on. Not only that, but in Acts chapter 1, we see that he ascends into heaven on a cloud, which the same way the angels say, why are you, why are you, why apostles, why disciples, are you looking at where he went to? He's going to come back in the same way that he just was taken up in a cloud. Jesus is the son of man. And a note here, identification with him requires repentance and faith. This is how we know, are we those who are the ones that before the foundation of the world, our names were written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain? Well, if we have identified ourselves with him through repentance and faith, then we have every reason to trust that we are his. This is the brand that we wear. We don't wear the brand of the mark of the beast, as it were, as we read in Revelation 13. What we brand ourselves with is repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And the continual expression of that is obedience, that I trust that God's ways are better than mine. I trust that I am serving a man who is worthy of glory and honor and not a beast who is unwieldy and untempered. The difference between, one of the main differences between the fourth beast and the Son of Man is that the Son of Man is given not just dominion, not just a kingdom, but he's given glory. Because God, rightfully so, is the only one who will allow Glory to come to himself, to his son, to his spirit. Glory in this chapter of Daniel 7 only comes to the son of man, not the four beasts, not their kingdoms. Our eighth point, 
The Antichrist is real and will come to power. I think we should stop spending our time trying to discern the times and the seasons. But the Antichrist is real and will come to power. God's people will suffer under him, as we read before, both in Revelation 13 and in Daniel 7. It's understood that in verse 25 when it says, And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That that means three and a half years. In Daniel 13, that was 42 months, which is three and a half years. It's understood that he will reign for three and a half years. He'll have that power for that long. But you also see from Revelation 13 that Satan is the one who is behind him. Satan is the one who gives him his own authority that he has. All the suffering that the world endures, past, present, future, is because... of this authority that has been given to Satan and that Satan gives to one like this fourth beast, this little horn that comes up. And my point, because we're running out of time, knowing all this, all of this having been said, one of the dangers, I'll get to the succinct point here in a second, One of the dangers that we have as we go through these prophecies is that they'll just be information. It'll just be, oh, now I know what that means. Oh, now I know who that is. And it'll be left at that. I like to know information. I like to understand all of these unknowns, all of these strange images and these symbols and what they stand for, what they mean. But what are we supposed to do with that? What do we do with that information? Because if all it was was for us to be able to identify, I don't think that's what was meant. I don't think that was the purpose. And so I think one of the things that we need to bring out of this, and that I would encourage us as we end this together in chapter 7, is to let us be a people who strive to live lives of godliness and witness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Knowing the future affords us legitimate concern yet eternal peace. Knowing the future affords us legitimate concern, yet eternal peace. We may not have the peace as we commonly think of it, or the no troubles in our life, no suffering, no issues. There ought to be legitimate concern that we be a people who strive for godliness and holiness that we ought to have compassion towards those who are suffering in this world, in this life. And that we can know that this knowledge of the future, this knowledge of the things that have been, the things that are, and the things that are to be, can give us eternal peace. How 
How are we to respond to the knowledge of all this? We cast our hope on Jesus Christ alone. And we don't just do that for ourselves, but we also are witnesses to those around us, to the resurrection and salvation that is found only in Christ, in Christ alone. What should we take away from any of these prophecies that we read about, anything we read in Revelation, anything we read in the rest of Daniel, let these truths be on our mind the entire time, not just who is that person and who is that other person and who does that be stand for and what does that mean. Yeah, that's great and wonderful, but do not miss what Peter's admonition is toward us. What ought of people ought we to be? What, what sort of people ought we to be? In lives of holiness and godliness, of witness. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and I do pray that you would help us not to be so afraid of with what is to come or what has happened that we cower in fear or we just become apathetic because it's difficult to know, but that we recognize that you are in control of all things, that your kingdom will endure, that your kingdom will last forever, and that you have called us to be a people who live lives of repentance and faith, who look to you for guidance, for answers, for grace, for mercy. God, we look to you as a servant looks to the hand of his master, as a maidservant to the hand of her mistress. We look to you for mercy. So God, would you, would you grant us the grace and mercy that we need to live lives of holiness and godliness, of witness to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.